Hey, what's going on? This is the Educated Guest Podcast, and I'm Justin, your host. Hey, if this is your first time listening, I just want to say thank you, first and foremost, for becoming a part of this community. You know, I think it's very easy to give your time away to all these different things and never really give it to yourself. So I especially understand the importance of you being here today. So if you clicked on this, if you joined into this community, if you've invited your time, your precious time to be consumed with whatever information we have to offer today, then I'm eternally grateful for that. And more importantly, what we hope to do is to not just offer some transactional information to get you through the day. So if you're here for that, then maybe this is not the right place for you. Instead, most people who are here are interested in transformational information, the information around art education that's going to take them outside the bounds of their day job, outside the bounds of their day to day relationships, their day trading of information, of attention, of you know, these sorts of projects, but instead zoom out and see what the broader arc of their life is as a creator, as an artist. And it's in, this, it's in this zooming out that we focus on three sort of pillars to hold up that arc. The first is a pillar of mindset development, and we call it our incomplete thoughts segment. The second pillar is the development of the tools, the tactics, the skill sets that are needed to get things done in this, in this industry or in this realm of um, sort of bubble thinking, if you will project-based work, artistic work, and that's called our work-study segment. And then our third pillar is called our well-read segment where we offer inspiration. So those three pillars to hold up the arc of your creative life have to do with mindset, have to do with tactics, and have to do with inspiration. So if you're here for transaction, again, then this may not be the best place, but if you're here for transformation, then go to educated-guest.com, subscribe to our newsletter for more information like this. We don't bother with the whole whole bunch of news, nuance, you know, nuisance-based um, information on a regular basis. Instead, we're here for information that is truly worthwhile, truly consistent, and all that good stuff. All right, I've outlasted the intro, so let's go ahead and get into it. At educated underscore underscore guests on Instagram, and you can just find us there and talk to us there if you're interested. All right, so today's topic is all about inclusivity. And when we talk about inclusion, when we talk about inclusion in this in the realm of art and design, it's become a pretty hot topic. You know, if you think about, like back to sort of um, John Maeda's design and tech report, I think it was last year or the, you know, the 2020 report, which w- would have been issued last year, I believe. Um, he talked about these three epics, these three design epics, these three design periods, if you will, of classical design, which would be the craftsmanship of, you know, the 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 pottery maker, the the the, the Greco-Roman sculptors, the um, the artisanal sort of Art Deco approach to design, which is more ornate deals with craft and the value is in the way that you can mold materiality, the way you can, you know, use your perspective to offer something unique in the world that people can look at, use, all that good stuff. And then he moved into the second epic that had to do with design thinking, 
And he kind of summarized it was like classical, if, if classical design had to do with the notion of look at this chair, it's a beautiful chair. Then the next one is in, in, in design thinking is, well, how do we know if we need a chair? And how do we know? And I might be getting this slightly off, but it's just a general gist. You can go read it. Again, it's Sean Mayer's Design and Tech Report. The second one was the notion of how do you know if you need a chair and who is the chair for? And this sort of um, act of inquiry to step back and remove the veil of um, ego within design to get a better solution. And then the third epic, which he talks about, it brings us to sort of the point we're talking about today is computational design. And it's this notion of understanding the systemic connections between one node that which may be which may seem ungodly unrelated and another node which seemingly is also nearly unrelated and before i get into the three points i want to cover today with regard to the basics of inclusive design i want to talk about a recent um finding i had where someone described a similar sort of three-pronged approach to assessing systemic issues. And he broke it down into simple systems, complicated systems, and complex systems. Whereas a simple system is like finding, is like cooking something out of a cookbook. Very simple, repeatable. You can get it done. His name is Bradfeld, really great guy, um, who had this, who had this thesis. And the second one is this notion of um complicated systems in which there is a deterministic a deterministic outcome in the sense that if you if you do this then you can do that if you do this then you can do that and this is where we've gotten in this programmatic sort of um engineering focused way of living for the past um umpteen years where there is a predictability now complex systems is something like the coronavirus where you have one complicated system next to another complicated system next to another complicated system, for example, there's no way to accurately predict whether giving everybody $500 every single month, regardless of race, regardless of you know background, will have any deterministic outcome. It's just a blind test. It's a blind decision that's based on the most information you had at the time and hopefully there's an outcome. So the process of dealing with complex systems is really what inclusive design and, and computational design is all about. It's about dealing with complexity, not complication, but complexity. And the complexity is all about knowing that coronavirus is obviously a health crisis. It's also, it's also an economic crisis. And again, Bradfield goes into much more detail than this, but. It's also a health. It's also a economic crisis, which is also a racial injustice crisis. It's also a uh, topological crisis. It's also, um, given the fact of, you know, people were talking about about widespread pollution decreasing in the notion of of quarantine or during the time of quarantine. Now we're back out and semi open for business, and now pollution rates are probably going back up. So it's now becoming a uh, geographic and again, topological crisis. So the problem here is that the problems of the future for artists and designers are not problems of programmatic decision-making. They're not problems of classicism or 
sort of artisanal grandeur. Like nobody's getting an award in the future, I don't really believe, for making the prettiest coffee table. Because what use is the coffee table if we now have a global crisis of racial racial inequity? If we have a global crisis of healthcare reform or healthcare necessity? If we have a global crisis of global warming? If you have a global global crisis of global warming, that's redundant, but you get the point. Like these, this globalization of problems almost removes the necessity for doing classical design or design thinking for any sort of reward at the end. So immediately my hope is that in what we're talking about today with these three prongs or these three pillars of inclusivity, that my hope is that you can understand where to plug in, where to plug in. Because there's a lot of people, most people are out here chasing the tail of awards that were given 30, 40 years ago. They're they're chasing the Renzo pianos. They're chasing the story of um, Mondrian. They're chasing the story of Keith Haring. They're chasing the story of Basquiat. And yes, artistry will always, always be important. Artistry is the spice of life. Art is the, the spirit of life. It's the spirit made manifest. It's the spirit of you know, equanimity and equity throughout cultures, throughout nations, beyond borders. Like Art is the universal language, and I don't think it's going anywhere. The point here is that to make money, to have a career, to have something that leaves impact beyond the realm of expression. Like it's one thing to express, it's another thing to impact. And my hope here is that most people who come to this community, who come to this alternative form of art educations can have a unique form of, a unique, a unique balance between expression and impact. So let's go to point number one of sort of understanding the basics of inclusive design. And some of the people I'll reference a lot are far better points of reference than me um, to dig deeper into the details of inclusivity because they've literally written books about it and they've operated at the largest scales, i.e. Microsoft and Automatic and these sorts of companies. So the first inclusive design basic I want to go through is this notion of recognition. And most people will be, you know, when you start talking about how do you approach inclusivity, how do you make sure that you're making decisions in complex systems at an appropriate clip and an appropriate rate with understanding of the biases at, at play? Well, the first step is to recognize recognition. And this is mainly taken from a framework that's popularized by Kat Holmes and her team at Microsoft and um, the book Mismatch. But most people would be quick to define a disability as a personal health condition. And we're really, well, why are we talking about disabilities? Well, disabilities are the, f- the foundation for inequity because disability, the very word of disability in the connotation of the modern, of the modern sense invokes this notion of inferiority. So whether you're talking about mental disability or mental incapability of a certain racial group, of a certain gender, of a certain 
background. Well, this is the foundation for inequity. Because one group decides to name another group disabled, which means they're not able to do whatever it is that the that the predominant group has decided as being an important capability to be able to achieve. So this could go as far as to say that people in the South who write left-handed are products of the devil. So you don't want to write left-handed. And they will force people who are left-handed by nature to write right-handed. So you get these little notions. So Kat Holmes and her team at Microsoft worked diligently to define disability not as a personal health condition, but instead her team attempts to define it as a mismatch of human interaction. So hence the book, Mismatch. And there's this brilliant table that her and her team, I've been studying, it's really brilliant because frameworks don't get enough credit. People are always like downplaying frameworks, but the benefit of frameworks is that they can summarize the complexity into a somewhat programmatic fashion so that you can approach complexity with a comprehensive mental approach. So the brilliance of this table and is that it summarizes this point and it describes disability as having variations. So when you think about disability, you think about difference, you think about um, this notion of incapability and possible incapability, you have to start with the variation of the permanent, number one, number two, the temporary, and number three, the situational. So again, those three variations of inclusivity, those three variations of disability, those three variations of mismatch are permanence, temporality, or the temporary, and three, situational. And when, we, when you cross-examine through the lens of the disabled senses of touching, hearing, seeing, and speaking, what you find is an interesting mosaic of disability that you may not have been aware of. For example, when looking through the lens of touching, all three of the following case studies will be relevant when thinking of disabled people and when thinking of people who are mismatched with the interactions of, of society, of human interaction. The first, if you're thinking about permanence, you think about someone with one arm. This is someone who just does not have one arm for whatever reason. The temporal is that someone with a broken arm has a sling. And then the situational is someone with newborn with a newborn baby in their arm, so they only have one free arm to operate with. And if you think about the nuance of this sort of mismatch with the necessities of human interaction, given the current circumstances or the current constraints of society, then you start to realize just how broad the mosaic of disability can be. And in the end, the summary of this first point is this. If you're attempting to solve problems at scale, if you're attempting to solve problems at scale, i.e. if you're an artist who's looking past expression and is looking into impact, then it's important that you consider the cross-section of physical disability and diversity, as well as the social and cognitive inclusion products available. So as you start thinking about these things, in other words, you need to be absolutely clear about the cross-section, this intersection of disability and diversity, where you can't just label, oh, well, you know, we... Yeah, you know, we make apps and 
we expect everybody to be right-handed. So we put all our buttons on the certain side of the screen. But what happens if you make emergency helpline apps and there's a certain frustration that's not accounting for, and this is just a, an on-the-spot um, case study that I'm just thinking of. What, if, what happens if you make emergency helpline apps and you don't have a translation or if you don't have a sort of barrier to calling the suicide help helpline that's not nothing more than a hold a hold screen or a hold tone or anything like that that helps you sort of get past this moment if you call in a suicide helpline and you got to listen to somebody who speaks a different language than you then it might turn you off and you might not even feel welcome and as a result because they haven't considered the diversity of the different types of human interaction points that are trying to reach them, then they might lose someone. So that's the gravity of these decisions as we think about the broad diversity of humanity and the many, many different places to plug in. So the second step of inclusivity and inclusive design, when you think about the basics, is cognition. So cognition is after we recognize and outline the inherent biases we all carry, we're then left mostly in wonder and awe, right? So as we've been studying the work of the inclusion project, you know, championed by, by Microsoft that I've been mentioning, we found that most people simply stop at step one. They never move into a place of seeking to understand case stories and case studies that might land and might lead to greater insight. The good news is that this inclusivity study by Cat Holmes and company, so, and I hate to do and company, you know, there's, I know there's a brilliant team and they're all footnoted at, at their website. They're all footnoted at um, the book, um, in the book rather. And I really, really urge you to go seek out that information. And in doing so, you'll find that they summarize it by saying that the insight is in the adaptation or the adaption. So for example, imagine trying to wash your hands as a dark-skinned individual and having the automatic sensor fail to recognize your skin tone. Pretty traumatic, right? Like, that's pretty traumatic. The truth is that exclusion is a deeply personal subject for many people and often a painful one. And Holmes extends this line of thinking in an interview by stating that social cognitive neuroscience studies like these led by Dr. Naomi Eisenberger and Dr. Matthew Lieberman are helping to shed light on the effects of this social exclusion, ostracization, basically people who are ostracized, when rejection. The, um, there's this evidence that feeling socially rejected activates some of the same areas of the brain that are activated when a person feels physical pain. Imagine that. Imagine being socially rejected and sensing the same sort of activation in your areas of the brain that are activated when people, when you stub your toe, or when someone punches you in the stomach. It's not just a mental thing. It's always a mental thing, whether physical or non-physical, whether physical or social. So in short, exclusion can hurt, not just metaphorically, but physiologically. It's the same receptors, it's the same neurons, it's the same nodes connecting that 
if someone were to punch you in the stomach, when you're socially rejected, when products aren't built for you, when spaces aren't built for you, when organizations aren't built for you and they and you know they aren't built for you it's a pain it's a pain so to conclude i want to i want to talk about the third point briefly and then we'll we'll wrap this thing up the third point is ambition so we've moved through this sort of mosaic and this roadmap of inclusivity The first is recognition. The second step is cognition. And then the third step is ambition. And I'll start with this quote that inclusion is a vast promise. And this is from Cat Holmes Serpentine. Inclusion is a vast promise. As immense, in fact, as human diversity. And that's what makes it a great design challenge. But without a clear agreement on what inclusion is, can we ever really hope to achieve it? How can we design for something that means so many different things to different people? End quote. Most people hear this quote and imagine their own negative experience of exclusion. I bet that you're a bit like us and that you immediately jump to how much needs to change. And immediately you might feel this immeasurable sense of overwhelm come over you. And... As we mentioned earlier this week, by going deep on the ideas of entropy, there's beauty in constraints. There's beauty in difference. There's beauty in rearrangement. There's beauty in change. The team responsible for the study itself mentions the following, is that designing for people with permanent disabilities can seem like a significant constraint, but the resulting designs can actually benefit a much larger number of people. For example, Closed captioning was created for the hard of hearing community. But there are many benefits of captioning, such as reading in a crowded airport or teaching children how to read. So you see that there's a lot to be learned and a lot of places to plug in beyond expression. I think that people get very, particularly creatives, get very egotistical and narcissistic in this in the respect of they need to feel themselves being heard and that's an incredibly important i feel like every every young adult every adult even some regardless of age goes through this arc of personal discovery where they move from being a childlike artist and having that natural artistic fluidity within them and and someone tells them they're doing something wrong, like you shouldn't write left-handed, you should write right-handed, or your handwriting is bad or illegible or whatever. And then you move into a place where your confidence is broken. And then you move into a place where you use your money that you made doing things you don't really like to try to buy back your confidence that people are selling to you. You're trying to, they're trying to sell the confidence back to you in the form of luxury, in the form of travel, in the form of places to go, people to meet, people to, people to you know, build relationships with, all these things. Um, and then I think there's this curious plateau that everyone reaches at whatever age they decide to reach it, where they have this innate sense and this innate understanding where the, the need to express is no longer as strong as it once was. 
the need to talk is no longer as strong as it once was. Instead, they realize that they could have spoken all along and they've gotten their thoughts out. And once their thoughts are out, the only way to be full again is to serve. So that's why we want to do this um, particular lecture in this way where we're talking about inclusivity and we're talking about the next frontier of design and art, the next frontier of showing up in the world where it's not about classicism in the sense of the Greco-Roman classics of making the prettiest sculpture possible. And it's not about design thinking in the sense of having some perfect framework to solve everything, but it's in the sense of approaching complexity. In the sense of approaching complexity and approaching it with a new type of candor, a new type of focus, a new type of energy that is needed and is needed from you. So that's all we have for today. If you're interested in more information like this, like I said before, you can go to educated-guest.com or at educated underscore underscore guests. And one more thing, one more thing is that we are doing a capsule which will end in just a week. And in this capsule, you will receive one garment, one piece that is our first release on behalf of educated guests in the community here. And it's meant to benefit the wonderful work being done at Jones Valley Teaching Farm in Birmingham, Alabama. And every bit of the proceeds will be going to that. It's a beautiful piece. It's heavyweight material. It's quality design. All of the lettering on the shirt is hand-drawn and all of the illustration is hand-drawn. All the coloring is hand-done and it's direct to garment printing. And I think you'll really love it. I think you'll really love it. So I encourage you, if you're interested, if this sounds like something that's for you, then go to our link in our bio at educated underscore underscore guest on Instagram and click on our link on my bio to learn more. So that's all we have. If you're interested in more, again, at educated underscore underscore guests, we'll talk to you soon.